Uh, the talk this evening, <clears throat> uh, the talk this evening uh, is called Your Original Face. But before we get on to that, um, I'd like to respond uh, to a question that was posted a couple of days ago. Um, nirvana in Buddhism is traditionally understood as the, the ending of suffering or the cessation of suffering. Yet, when we looked at uh, a number of passages uh, in the last talk, we find, on the one hand, the Buddha describes it quite explicitly as clearly visible, whereas I think for most of us, the ending of suffering is not clearly visible. And also, in my interpretation of the um, earliest account we have of the Buddha's awakening, he spoke of uh, nirvana as um, this ground that he had somehow come to see once he had let go of his preoccupation with his place and that ground he described as as hard to see but I interpreted it as painful to see difficult in the sense that it's very um, it's very unsettling very disturbing to encounter uh, this ground Now that is very much at odds with the idea that nirvana is, is the end of suffering or the end of pain. Here we have a text, a rather crucial text, that suggests that when one experiences nirvana, that is somehow unsettling, maybe troubling. So what's going on here? Well, I think as in many instances, we have to, to differentiate. Well, we don't have to, but I'm choosing to do so. To differentiate between what um, we find in a number of early passages in the Pali Canon from what subsequently came to be known as the religion of Buddhism. And my hunch, and I must admit, it is a hunch, is that the idea of nirvana as the end of suffering is the view that evolved in the process of Buddhism becoming another Indian religion. We only have to look at... Um, uh, a number of classical definitions also found in the early canon, where nirvana is not described as the ending of suffering at all. In fact, the classical definition, or a classical definition, is that nirvana is the, the stopping of, of craving. In fact, one of the peculiarities of the Buddha's first discourse is that 
he defines what are called the four noble truths. And the first noble truth is dukkha, suffering, which is birth, sickness, aging, death, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, and so on. But when he describes, or when the text defines uh, dukkha niroda, the ending of suffering, it doesn't say anything about the ending of birth, sickness, aging, and death. But instead it says uh, the ending of grasping, the ending of craving. Now clearly you can be in an experience which is clearly visible, in which you're at still, at peace, in which there's no more grasping, no more craving. And yet that's not going to stop you getting old or getting a cold or breaking your leg or dying. So there's a mismatch here. And I think it's in these little mismatches that we detect the hand of the um, orthodox interpolator those who come along later and stitch the religion up so that it fits the norm of what an Indian religion should be. And we have to remember that whether it's Jainism or Buddhism or or Hinduism, all of them aspire to attain nirvana as the cessation of birth and death the cessation of rebirth. So my suspicion is that the way the idea of nirvana started out and and, and as is uh, explained in a number of passages that run through the canon, turned into something else. It turned into... um, the Buddhist version of the ending of birth and death, the ending of rebirth, the ending of suffering. And thereby, Buddhism competed with its rival religions on a more or less level playing field. But what I feel is our challenge today when, let's face it, most of us are not committed to the cosmology and the soteriology of ancient India. Soteriology means the way we think about salvation or liberation. We're coming to these teachings with a whole different set of um, of views of the world and and of ourselves and a whole different set of questions about what it means to be a human being, what it means to lead a flourishing life. And I feel that the most um, uh, effective responses to those kind of questions are found in those uh, fragments, those elements of text and teaching that do not form part of the Indian religion of Buddhism but tap back into what we might call the Dhamma or the teaching of the historical Buddha. So why would it be uh, disturbing or unsettling 
to um, experience uh, nirvana. What is upsetting about that? Well, let's just look at the standard uh, definition. Nirvana is ragakayo, dosakayo, mohakayo. The ending of greed, the ending of hatred, the ending of confusion. Now, by ending, we don't mean here the final permanent cessation thereof, but as we saw in the last talk, any moment in our life when we're not driven or determined by our greed, by our hatred, by our confusion. So what are greed, hatred, confusion code for. They're basically code, shorthand, for our reactive uh, patterns that come up spontaneously when confronted with life situations. If something's nice, we reactively say, yes, I want it, I want to get that. If something's unpleasant, we say, got to get rid of that, don't like it. And if something's neither pleasant nor unpleasant particularly, we just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, mm, it's not very interesting. Uh, or we just start mulling over about me and my frustrations and my stories and so on. Now, Nibbana is those moments when that's not happening. So in that sense, in encountering Nibbana, in trying to live from the perspective on life which is not determined by greed and by hatred and by confusion, we're actually encountering another possibility of uh, inhabiting ourselves and this world morally and ethically. And this is upsetting and, and unsettling because we no longer have the comfort of just behaving according to type or according to habit. If it's nice, I try and get it. If it's unpleasant, I try and get rid of it. That's very easy. It comes naturally. Suddenly we find ourselves in a dilemma where, let's say, we have to respond to the suffering of another person. And rather than just go with our instincts, oh, this is a hassle, let's get the get out of here, or, oh, I, I, you know, I want to do something that's going to make me feel good and make the other person think well of me. When we're actually confronted with that, that dukkha of the other, from this space in which greed, hatred, and delusion are no longer predominantly operative, then we are thrown into the genuine dilemma of ethical and moral choice. What do I do? Well, to spell it out in a bigger picture, the injustice that exists in an unequal world, why people in Africa are starving and people in Europe are living comfortable, privileged lives. What do I do? And although this is not remotely traditional, my sense is that nirvana has a deep ethical core to it. It's, those, it's that quality of mind 
in which we are challenged to respond to life, unconditioned by greed, unconditioned by hatred, unconditioned by fear, unconditioned by bewilderment. So it's in that sense that it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable because it's morally uncomfortable. And the same is true likewise with this other ground the Buddha spoke of that is difficult to see, namely the contingency of life, the conditionality of life, the complexity of life, the tragedy of life. This too, it's difficult to open our eyes to that because we much prefer a world that is straightforward and definable and manageable and much of our time is spent trying to construct a life situation for ourselves that minimizes complexity, ambiguity, tragedy, complexity, and so on. Now I'd like to take this one step further and suggest that what the Buddha describes in his awakening as the seeing of this ground that is hard and difficult to see, contingency on the one hand and the the moral uh, challenge of nirvana on the other, is tantamount to encountering the ground of life itself. Yet without positing something transcendent, some ultimate ground of being or anything like that, but rather um, facing and acknowledging that the ground of life is this complex, shifting, transient, ephemeral, playful, um, glittering uh, matrix of events. And what's curious is that the Buddha would have called this a ground at all. It's very unground-like. In fact, we know from, from the Upanishads that the word that the Buddha uses for ground in Pali, it's tanna, in Sanskrit it's adhisthana, uh, usually refers to God. It refers to Brahman, the unconditioned oneness, the ultimate being of the cosmos. So the Buddha uses this same word, but rather naughtily turns it into exactly what Brahman is not, namely the fluid, shifting, tragic, rising and vanishing of the world of life itself. And as we encounter that ground, we also, at least according to this account of his awakening, encounter the possibility of responding to it undetermined or unconditioned by our greed, by our hatred and our confusion. The two go together. Now this to me seems quite close to what in Zen Buddhism is called 
your original face. Um, <clears throat> this is a, a phrase that we find in a number of contexts. It seems to have originated uh, with Hui Neng. Remember, Hui Neng was the, the Zen master of Nanwa Se in southern China who asked Hui Zhang, what is this thing? And how did it get here? And the text that uh, is attributed to Hui Neng in this regard is, when you are not thinking of anything good or anything bad, what is your original face? So in other words, um, when you set aside your preoccupations with what you think is good, what you think is bad, when you allow that to settle, that allows you to somehow touch something deeper than that polarity. I like it, I don't like it, it's good, it's bad. And encounter, in a sense, the sheer play, the rising and the passing of life itself of your body, of your feelings, of your perceptions, of your inclinations, your consciousness. It's in in those moments you witness um, the play of those events. But another phrase that we find, I'm not quite sure where it comes from, is the, the question... Before your parents were born, what was your face? Or what was your original face before your parents were born? That's a fairly famous formulation of this question. And again, it's often thought of as a typical Zen kind of riddle. And it is a bit of a riddle, I suppose. But let's just think for a moment about parents I don't think it literally means before your parents were physically born on earth. But I would take it to mean before the idea arose in your mind of being a son or a daughter. What was your face like then? In other words, before you assumed an identity as having a particular place in the world, as a son as a daughter, with your parents. I suspect it's code for what um, we spoke of in the other talk about how we become preoccupied with our place and our status. Remember, Lynchy speaks of a true person of no status. The original face before you were born. I think both are hinting at the same experience. And although the Pali Canon doesn't use such such concrete, um, rather provocative metaphors, my sense is that uh, the ground of conditioned arising and nirvana is pretty much the same thing. Let's try to just flesh that out a bit in terms of the practice we're doing here. 
um, when we sit in meditation, we come, let's say, to our breath. We allow ourselves to settle in the sheer primary rhythm of life itself. And each time the mind wanders off, and as I mentioned before, when it wanders off, it almost invariably um, retreats back to the comfort of the places we inhabit. If you look at your fantasies, at least if I look at my fantasies, Mm -hmm. to some extent they're about uh, the story of Stephen and what an interesting and important person Stephen is (laughs) and how Stephen could get this and how Stephen might get rid of that and so on and so forth. It's about this uh, almost irrepressible narrative um, of me and what I want, what I don't want, what is good, what is bad. And we notice that going on or you know, 20 minutes passes and we notice what's going on and then we come back to the breath and we return to this rather weird and in some ways rather unsettling experience of um, an undefined, unstructured, um, unnarrated experience. We're sitting on the ground, I've got a pain in our lower back, our left leg is going to sleep, we've got pins and needles in the foot. Um, There's a kind of vague awareness of different noises and birds and planes going overhead. We're aware of people sitting around us. We're aware it's a bit chilly or it's a bit warm. We're aware of the body as it breathes in, as it breathes out. And we try to stay with that. We just try to come to rest in what is, in the language of of Buddhism, uh, conditioned arising. Things arising, passing, arising, passing, with no particular rhyme or reason. It's just what's going on. But this is our ground, as it were. And although meditating on the breath seems a pretty safe and unthreatening kind of thing to do, as we go more deeply into it, as we perhaps add an element of of perplexity or puzzlement. And we say, well, what is this? What is this that's breathing and hearing? What is is going on here? That sometimes leads to um, an experience uh, that is rather, um, uh, rather anxious. It's as though we're we're, we're, we're loosening the moorings to what feels safe. And in fact, one of the reasons that we, we construct these retreats in a way that has a lot of structure, you know, sitting and walking at given times, talks, interviews, all of these things, are in a way to create a safe space, to do it with other people, so that we're not alone in this. I mean, this is rarely sort of spelt out, but that's the uh, purpose in many ways of engaging on this retreat as a group. I suspect very few of us in this room could have followed this schedule 
if we'd just been sitting in our house or flat back where we live. But what this enables us to experience, maybe not all the time, maybe only momentarily, is another relationship to our life as a whole. We're no longer just preoccupied with Stephen and what Stephen can get and what Stephen likes and what Stephen doesn't like. That goes on, but we keep, in a sense, letting go of that. We stop reveling and delighting in that. And we just attend to this groundless ground. This ground that has no ground. There's nothing you can pin down and say, well, that's what I really am. You look into your body, you look into a sensation in your knee, and it just keeps going. You just find vibrations and rhythms and um, and, 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 and tinglings and, and aches and pains and you look into any one of them and that too breaks down there's something almost infinite as we peer into this unfolding flux of our lives and this perhaps is our original face this is uh, what we Uh, discover when we stop being the son and the daughter of our parents. This is what's there before all of that was born. And in fact, sometimes this uh, experience is called the unborn, uh, the unconditioned, the deathless, nirvana, the stopping of greed, stopping of hatred, stopping of confusion. All of these terms are synonymous. Now, it's often thought, I I feel, that that's that's the aim of the practice. That if you're practicing Zen, then you are often set up with the expectation that you need to break through have some kensho or satori in which you see for yourself your original face. If you're practicing in the, in the Indian traditions, let's say the Theravada tradition, again, the emphasis will be on nirvana, attaining nirvana, attaining the direct experience of the stopping of craving, the stopping of greed, stopping of hatred and resting in that. And it's called, again, the experience of, of the deathless, of the unconditioned. And that's, in a way, regarded as the goal of the practice. Again, I think that is uh, a mistake. I don't think that's what the Buddha was originally doing. Rather than thinking of such moments as the goal of the practice, it might be more helpful to think of them as the beginning of the practice. And I mean that quite literally. Let's for a moment just um, look at the context within which that sort of experience um, is, is contained. 
And the classical context is that of what are called the Four Noble Truths. But here too, we encounter a problem. It seems possible that the word or the expression noble truth was also added later. In an essay written by a a leading Pali philologist called K.R. Norman, published in 1992, he analyzes the Buddha's first discourse in which the Four Noble Truths are presented. Uh, from a purely grammatical and syntactical uh, standpoint. He's not a Buddhist. He's just he's one of the world's leading authorities on mid-Indo-Aryan Prakrits. Very specialist kind of field. Prakrit means a spoken language as opposed to Sanskrit, which is a classical for- formulated language. The Buddha spoke in, in Prakrits. The Buddha spoke in the, the language of the ordinary people. He didn't use the language of the priests. And Pali is um, what's come to be. It's slightly been literary, literaryized a bit and modified. But basically it's a Prakrit. It's, it's, it's an ordinary idiomatic speech. At the conclusion of this essay, uh, Mr. Norman says and I'm quoting, in the earliest version of this discourse, the words noble truth did not appear. As blunt as that. I don't want to go into the arguments. They're a bit technical and they're not really concern us in what we're doing here. But the point is that the language of truth, of, of realizing the truth, is something that came along later. That's the language of formal religion. Religions, by necessity, claim to represent what is true, and thereby other religions have somehow got it wrong. Mm -hmm. And that gives you the basis not only for belief, I believe in Buddhism because Buddhism tells you what's true, the Four Noble Truths are things I agree to be true as a Buddhist. I think all of that is an overlay. And if we take out the word noble truth, then what we are left with are simply the four. (laughs) And the four are dukkha, or suffering, samudaya, which means the arising, Niroda, which means the ceasing, and Magga, which means the path. And in the, if you if you look at the first discourse, um, the Buddha uh, concludes by saying that he was not, he could not consider himself to have attained awakening until his knowledge and vision was entirely clear about all aspects of the four. And when he explains what those aspects are, they've got nothing to do with truth. They have to do with his having performed four tasks. 
that he has fully known dukkha, one. He has let go of craving or the arising, two. He has experienced or he has seen for himself the ceasing of craving and he has created and cultivated a path, a way of life, the Eightfold Path. So we see here that the awakening is not reducible to some kind of privileged, mystical experience of the deathless, for example. But actually, it has to do with the recognition the performance and the accomplishment of a sequence of tasks. And this turns awakening or enlightenment into a process, an ongoing process, an ongoing relationship with the world, rather than achieving a privileged state of mind, enlightenment, with a big E. Now, when we start thinking of Buddhism in this way, um, everything begins to change. We have to, in a sense, unlearn a lot of what we've been taught, or let's put it more personally, I have probably spent more time unlearning Buddhism than I spent learning it. And one of the key unlearnings is to stop thinking in terms of truths, to stop thinking in terms of states of enlightenment, to stop thinking in any kind of ontological way. In other words, the Dharma or the Buddha's teaching is telling you what is the nature of reality. That whole way of thinking, I think, totally misses the point. The Buddha is not trying to describe Experience. He is offering us a set of um, of tools, a set of tasks, uh, and suggesting we might, you know, try and perform those tasks. It might make a difference. He's a pragmatist. He's interested in doing something that will make a change. He's completely disinterested in any kind of metaphysical theories that explain or justify that process. So again, if we come back to our retreat, the first task is to embrace dukkha, dukkha parinya, fully know dukkha. Dukkha, again, although it does literally mean suffering, it's shorthand for experience in its totality. Um, Admittedly, with a kind of tragic tinge. Uh, My friend Don Cupid calls it the bitter, bittersweet taste of life. And so fully embracing dukkha is basically opening your heart and your mind to life itself in a totally wholehearted, unreserved unhesitating way. Now again, that might sound like a nice idea, (laughs) 
But in practice, uh, it's probably the most difficult thing there is to do. And of course, a lot of what we're doing, probably all that we're doing on this retreat, is the practice of this first noble task. Each time we sit on our bum and look at our breath and become aware of our body, we are trying to fully know the situation we're in, to embrace that situation. And again, it's not, although it might start, perhaps it has to start with our own immediate experience in our own body, in our own mind, in our own feelings. As you look more deeply into such an experience, you realize that you cannot neatly circumscribe yourself. That your sense of experience unavoidably leaches out and leaches in to the experience of the whole, of others. If somebody in the room, for example, starts crying, or sobbing, you, the more sensitized you are, the more that sobbing and that crying moves you. You can't just draw a line and say, well, that's nothing to do with me. Whether you want to or not, if your mind and heart are open, you empathetically resonate with that other person's distress. And what is often the case on or after a meditation retreat, is you you go back to the world and you feel for a a few days at least rather strangely vulnerable and sensitive. The world has become that much more raw and shocking and painful. It's difficult to see, difficult to awaken to. And this, I think, is the ground for the next task. The next task is the, the falling away or the dropping away or the letting go of those habitual reactive patterns, greed, hatred, confusion, craving, that nirvana is not. Nirvana is the suspension or the stopping of that behavior. And what really undermines the raison d'etre of greed and hatred and fear and confusion is our capacity to embrace the world from a new perspective, one in which we're not the centre of the story. We're not what is the only thing that matters. But we've somehow reached out and opened ourselves to life in its totality. So fully knowing or embracing dukkha leads, I think, almost unavoidably to the falling away of pettiness, the falling away of, yeah, 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 I want this, I want that. It just doesn't really have any purchase anymore. It'll keep running. It's a show that's been on the road probably since organic life began to evolve on this planet, so it's not going to disappear after a week's retreat. But we don't take it so seriously anymore. We just see it as the play of the mind. We see it as the product of our conditioning. 
this fear, this hatred, this shame, this guilt. It'll all keep coming up. But somehow it's not center stage anymore. It's just part of the show. But we don't believe in it as much as we may have done in the past. And that falling away, that dropping away of those uh, reactive patterns leads us to moments when we experience that they're not there anymore. We experience moments of a deep a stillness, a deep quiet, a tranquility, an openness, a clarity. And this is the third task, to, to consciously um, affirm that these things have stopped. They're not operative anymore. We're finding ourselves, maybe just momentarily, but in a crucially uh, different kind of relationship to the world. One that's not determined by our egoism. And again, I don't think these experiences are so terribly rare, as we saw in the example with Sivaka in the last talk. The Buddha says, you know, you know for yourself when greed is not happening, hatred's not happening. And Sivaka says, yeah, of course. What we're doing here is, as it were, um, consciously and deliberately um, affirming, hopefully maybe expanding those gaps, those spaces in experience which are not determined by those, pat- those habits and patterns. So the task is to actually say, yes, this is my original face. This is the contingent play of life itself. The groundless ground to affirm that. But that's only the third task. The fourth task is to create and cultivate a way of life. A way of life that's not driven or determined by attachment and fear and greed and so on. And that's the Eightfold Path. So what I mean by saying that the experience of nirvana is not the goal but the starting point is that the experience that we, we seek to uh, deepen and enhance on a retreat, say, where we dedicate the time to really uh, connecting with and touching and opening ourselves to that ground is not an end in itself but actually is opening up another possibility of being in this world in the way that we think and speak and act and work and so on. Also, this is not just the preserve of monks and nuns. Another passage that I've only discovered fairly recently in the Pali Canon, um, is in the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses, section, uh, section 6, part, you know, um, uh, passage 128, if you want to look it up. 
And this is a very curious phrase in, in Pali that's given rise to all sorts of problems amongst orthodox interpreters. It gives you a list of 21 lay people and describes each of them as having, quote, found fulfillment in the Tathagata, become a seer of the deathless, become one who lives having experienced the deathless. Now, the deathless, Ammatam, is nirvana, the unconditioned, whatever, what we've been talking about. And what is striking about this passage is that it doesn't set as the goal the seeing of the deathless, but the phrase in, in Pali is Ammatam Sachikatva Iriyati. Atanam means the deathless in the accusative. Sachikatva means having experienced. It's the same word as in the language of the four, experiencing cessation. Same word. Having experienced the deathless, iriyati, one lives. One goes about one's life. One goes about one's business. And this actually confirms very much the idea of the Four Noble Truths being Four Noble Tasks, which culminate not in the mystical experience of nirvana, but culminate in a way of life that is founded in the experience of nirvana. Nirvana, therefore, is quite explicitly understood here as the source for another kind of living in this world, another perspective from which to respond to circumstances, from which to live morally and ethically, to live contemplatively, reflectively, in an engaged way through one's work, through one's activities. And I think it's helpful to, to remember uh, not to privilege the kinds of experiences we might gain on a meditation retreat as the, as the, as the end all of what Buddhist practice is about, but actually to see what we're doing here as um, the discovery and the, the affirmation of another uh, beginning, another starting point, another source from how we can then return after the retreat into our ordinary everyday lives. That's the practice, not just coming on retreat. Okay, so I'll stop here. Um, we have some time uh, for questions, if there are any, or comments. Yes, Marie. Ma Mary. <laughs> I'll get it right. Um, if, we're, if, if we're going with the idea of, of Buddha as a pragmatist, not overly concerned with metaphysics and with tasks rather than truth, um, is it then reasonable to say that up alongside 
what is this? Maybe the question we should be asking is, is what do you do with this? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, um, if we discard metaphysics, mm-hmm. if we discard any idea of somehow it all being about getting, getting to the truth, and if we think of this practice as eminently pragmatic, then the question, what is this, I think quite correctly morphs into, what do I do? What do I do about this? I remember many years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine, a Canadian fellow who was a, an ecologist. And he said, the, you know, the, 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 real, the, the great koan of our time is the planet Earth, as it were, seen in the sky. That is the question. You know, what, what do I do with this? And I think we can likewise turn it into, say, you know, any number of issues of uh, cruelty or injustice or suffering in the world. When we're confronted with that dukkha, you know, what do I do? And I think it's quite useful, actually, to think of moral questions as koans. Normally, koans kind of avoid moral issues. And possibly that's a prob- that may be a big prob- problem in itself. But um, what do I do? That's the real koan. Um, I've just been in Morocco. And um, I was hiking in the high Atlas Mountains and going into these tiny little village in valleys when there's no roads, no electricity, no water, kids running around in the dust, people living a subsistence life. And once I get over my European, oh gosh, isn't this pretty and romantic, you realize this is bloody hard existence. What can I do? How can I respond to that? And again, as with a koan, um, what the, the, we, we tend to just sort of give in to habitual reactivity. I'll make a donation to this charity. Good, done. Conscience solved. Now I can enjoy my hike in the Atlas Mountains. But again, that would be comparable to when you say, what is this? You come up with some clever, zenny, enigmatic answer. And then you can put it aside. Whereas the real challenge, as we've been saying, is to stay with the question, to allow the question to really seep into our being in order to really, as it were, uh, struggle with it without an expectation that we're going to come up with the answer. That, again, I think is a big problem. I've got the answer, I do this, then I can go on to something else. There's a powerful image in I don't know which text, Zen text it is, but it says you should, you should um, work with the koan or the question as though you were chewing on an iron rod, <laughs> an iron steak. It's very uncomfortable, <laughs> very uh, feeling. But it's, um, I, I think it's, it's always an image that's stuck with, with me. And I think the same with so many issues of our time. You know, the planet, the environment, poverty. Chew on them like you chew on an iron rod. Uh, and don't, you know, think there's a simple solution. There's not. 
It's somehow challenging us to respond not from our place, but from our ground. And that's unpredictable. We don't know what will come from that. Um, I'm confused about the language issue in terms of the Sanskrit Pali, but also where, say, Buddhism leaves off and Hinduism begins. Certainly words like Sukha and Dukkha and Niroda occur in the Yoga Sutras, as does the Ashtar and the Eightfold Path, and even later texts like the Hatha Yoga Pradipika are mainly about seated meditative practice mm-hmm. with little or no asana. And you mentioned the Upanishads, which I thought were classically pre-Hindu, or Hindus claim as part of the canon. Um, and so I was wondering if you could clarify, because the more you mention the Pali canon, the more I'm getting confused, because it sounds similar in terms of certain words and ideas. Okay. Um, I'm not going to go into a big disquisition on this, because it it's something I'm very interested in, but it's a little bit complicated and a bit off, bit off topic. But... Um, uh, the Upanishads are the body of literature that emerged after the Vedas. They're called Vedanta, the end or the culmination of the Vedas. And there are dozens of Upanishads. Scholars date about five of them as pre-Buddhist. So particularly the Brajyaranaka Upanishad. The Brajyaranaka Upanishad is one of the most famous ones, and it says in the text itself that it was, uh, it was spoken in Kosala, which is north of the Ganges, where the Buddha lived. And scholars have um, agreed that this text predates the Buddha by possibly a hundred years. The Chandogya Upanishad, likewise, predates the Buddha. The extent to which the Buddha was aware of these texts is still a subject of debate. But there's a fairly fairly broad acceptance now that the Buddha would certainly have been aware of the Brajyaranaka Upanishad and there's a number of texts in the Pali Canon where he seems to be referring to it. The Yoga Sutras of Patanjali are post-Buddhist and uh, we don't know exactly the dating of the Yoga Sutras but probably two, three hundred years after the Buddha, maybe more. And it shows clear borrowing of Buddhist ideas. It has, for example, the four Brahma-viharas, love, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. They're mentioned, the five powers. You mentioned the eightfold path. Um, Patanjali, or, who, or the collective that is known as Patanjali, uh, clearly borrowed Buddhist ideas and incorporated them into, their, uh, into that text. Uh, the later Hatha Yoga texts, way, way late, later. Um, so you can basically say in the, in the history of, of, of in. Indic literature, you have the Vedas, you have uh, some early Upanishads, you have the texts that are recorded in the Pali Canon, but the Pali Canon is not just of one specific period, it shows also the, an evolution possibly over one or two hundred years. Then you get Patanjali, after that you get the Bhagavad Gita uh, and things like that. But, but, but the Bhagavad Gita is certainly post-Buddhist. Something like that. Yes? Um, I wanted to go back to the question about asking the question, cultivating. Can you say something about when is the point to actually take action? Because you could ask the question forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
you know, in a way, living life, you're never really sure what you're doing. So, That's right. <laughs> well, um, again, I don't think there is a kind of um, a measurable point where the good Buddhist says, okay, I've, got, I've done the questioning now up to this point, now I've got to do something. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not as, as easy as that. And what it implies, I think, is that um, res- your response, the action you perform, what you say or do um, will always be a risk. You can never know in advance um, what the consequences of your action might be. You can contemplate for hours, you know, what are my motives, how can I best understand the complexity of this situation. There's no point at which you can ever know for sure this is the time to act. Nor is there the possibility of knowing that what you've decided to do will make things better or worse. We don't know. Uh, there's, just, there's way too many examples in history and in our own lives where we've acted out of the best of intentions to do good and we end up making the situation worse. So, uh, But on the other hand, you reach a certain point that may be dictated purely by external conditions. It may be that a person comes to you in distress, you don't have the time to say, wait a minute, I've got to go meditate for five hours, then I'll get back to you. You have to respond to the demand of the situation that is thrown in your face. And likewise with, um, you know, with, with issues at work or issues in families, you might have time to ponder and reflect, but at a certain point, some deadline arrives or you know, some decision has to be made, you have to act. And to me, this is all utterly intrinsic to what we call practice. I don't see practice, and in fact, I've got a big thing against people talking of their practices as their meditation. I do my practice, and then I live my life. No, no, your life is your practice, living your life. Having, as it says, ammatang satikatva iriyati, having seen the deathless, I act. But when you act and how you act, that's totally, un, that's totally un, unknowable. But life is such that we don't have a choice very often to refuse action. And even if we don't act, if we go off and, instead of dealing with a situation, we go off and live, move to a cave in the Himalayas, that's still an action. I mean, not acting is an action. So we are, by nature, um, creatures who act in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. Uh, meditation, doing nothing, is an act. We're choosing to do this. We're choosing to sit here and watch our breath. It's a choice. It's an action. It'll have results. Um, So I can't give you a a black and white answer to the question, which I doubt you expected. But I do think it's important, um, and also in in reference to Mary's question too, we need to integrate our speech and our acts into our concept of practice. 
And we learn from our mistakes. We learn from our successes. And then we internalize that learning so that it gives us maybe a richer resource of experience from whence to act the next time round. It's a constant ongoing feedback loop that we're engaged in. Um, I've often been in retreats where people come and meditate and say, I've got this real problem in my life and I'm going to meditate and I'm sure that'll you know, tell me, give me the answers to what I should do. Rarely works. In fact, what often happens is if you just meditate on your dilemma, it actually magnifies it, just makes it more of a dilemma. You become paralyzed. Meditation can become a sort of paralysis. It becomes, it becomes overwhelmingly difficult because you've taken into account all of the different considerations and you find yourself absolutely unable to do anything. But I think that's one of the really great challenges of, of this practice is how do we balance contemplation and action? How do we integrate the two? That's the practice. You can't privilege either one of them as as the real thing and the rest and the other as a sort of an adjunct. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.